Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, a Mexican cabinet secretary says that Mexico is close to a deal to lift the tariffs on steel and aluminum with the United States and that a trilateral deal might be around the corner. Reaction continues to pour in over the Hamilton Council's vote on offering free menstrual products, and Hamilton's public health could soon be no more with the province planning on amalgamating those regional boards. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Uh, There is a uh, report now that a senior Mexican cabinet secretary says that she thinks Mexico is close to a deal to lift those tariffs on steel and aluminum with the U.S. and suggesting that not just a bilateral, but perhaps a trilateral deal between all three countries, Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, to lift the tariffs. Uh, Forgive me for being skeptical about this. I'm not so sure this is even going to happen. I don't know why she even floated the story. Let's uh, bring Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, Ian, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us again today. My pleasure, Bill. Do you share my skepticism? I do, um, and it's based on hard um, uh, data, hard information, and it uh, can be expressed in a single word, Trump. Yep. And I mean by that, I'm not trying to demonize him or anything. Um, I'm not here to defend him nor to attack him, but to analyze him. And his modus operandi has become very, very clear, very transparent. He's going it alone. This, the, you know, the, the last 70 years was based on multilateralism, big fancy academic word that meant nations cooperated with other nations, through international organizations like the United Nations and the OECD and the IMF and the WTO and so forth. And Trump's uh, approach to these multilateralist uh, institutions is the hell with them. He says they're just, they've been, uh, he has said this very bluntly, they've been co-opted, he argues, by countries and interest groups whose interests are opposed to the United States. Whether we agree or not doesn't matter at this point. That's what Trump believes. So Trump is there to look after America. And he has said that his famous mega, mega, uh, make, make America great again yeah. mm-hmm. uh, theme. And you can see it here. He, he, he treats allies and, and uh, enemies, if I can use that word, uh, pretty well the same. Uh, you're you're all opposed to the United States. He's actually said that Canada and Mexico are cheating over the years in NAFTA. He said it was the worst deal of all time. I completely disagree with him, but that's what he said and believes. And so I can't see why he thinks it's in his interest to um, uh, back down on the, uh, the tariffs which he's imposed on Canada and Mexico, which, by the way, I think the polls are showing are, I don't want to say wildly popular, but they're quite popular. There's a lot of Americans who are saying, go stick it to them. You know, they've been doing it to us, the Chinese and the Germans and the Canadians and the Mexicans, and, and now it's our turn. You know, it's almost like a payback thing. Mm-hmm. And Trump is saying he's doing it, of course. We know why he's doing it. It's not because he's crazy. He's doing it because he's trying to drive investment from abroad, I mean, by companies that were exporting into the states. He's saying, look, you want to sell in the states? You better locate inside the borders of the United States. So he's sending them a strong message. And, you know, if you look at his economy, (laughs) 
it's the best economy in probably 50, 60, 70 years. And uh, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times are talking about this today. I mean, you know, people have run out of excuses explaining the extraordinary U.S. economy. And uh, and, and so he's going to, I, I don't see why he wants to, uh, to uh, give Canada a break or Mexico a break. Well, there's no reason for him to, because, I mean, he said time and time again, and we've seen this happen, uh, because we know, and, and you and I have talked about this many times too. Yeah, I mean, you know, tariffs actually have a negative impact on on American uh, consumers. He doesn't care. He says, you know what, the, my base is going to vote for me anyway, and I'll yeah. just, I'm just going to blame Canada and I'm going to blame China and blame every, and they'll buy it. They'll, they yeah. they buy whatever yeah. I say. So yeah. there are there is no downside for him to continue to do this. And and just one more point to add on to that, and I do agree with you. Uh, but one additional point is is that he, I think he also thinks that. The Chinese and the other countries will scream uncle at one point, to use an old famous slang phrase in English, meaning they will say, okay, I give up. <laughs> and, and that's what he's gambling on. There is no question. He thinks, he said just the other day, the Chinese export five times as much to us as we do to them. So they've got a lot more on the line to lose. And he's empirically, factually correct. With Canada and Mexico, he doesn't put it quite so crassly. But, you know, it's pretty clear in what he's saying. Mexico's poor and way, way smaller than us. Yes, Canada's rich, but hey, they're really tiny compared to us. So they need us more than we need them. And that's, his, again, his basic premise. And I, I, I hate to say this because, uh, uh, you know, I am a Canadian, and, and, uh, but I think he's right. Um, he's using the, you know, uh, might is right. I'm the biggest guy around. I've got bigger sticks. I've got bigger weapons. I've got bigger everything. You know, I've more, got more power. I've got a bigger economy. And you can all just go screw yourselves because this is what I'm going to do. And, and I think that's his approach. It's not based on principle. It's not based on precedent. It's not based on rule of law. It's based on I am determined to rebalance what he believes in a significant share of the U.S. population believes has been 50 years of people taking advantage of the United States in different areas, not only in terms of, uh, uh, you know, subsidizing the United Nations, where the U.S. pays something like 80% of all the bills of all the countries at the U.N., uh, on trade deals, and so on. There's this sense that America's decency was, and this is, I'm not saying I agree. I'm just quoting what I've read so many times and seen on campaign trail literature that the American goodwill and decency was uh, taken advantage of by uh, foreign interests, by f- other countries, and by foreign companies. And and he is very much determined that he's going to rebalance the equation. And there's, I'd say, at least 40%, if not 50% of Americans who agree with him. In fact, many of the Democrats are saying this, too. Senator Sanders is saying it using his own language rather than Trumpian language, mm-hmm. but he's essentially saying the same thing. And and so is the, uh, the former law professor at Harvard, who's now running uh, for the uh, presidency, the senator from Massachusetts. So, you know, there is a, a bipartisan consensus, even though they hate Trump. Uh, there's, when you look at the stuff he's saying on trade, I think there's a lot of support in the states for what he's doing. Well, especially because, as you mentioned, Ian, the numbers are there. And and I get it. I mean, you know, you, we've all seen the reports. I know that, yeah. you know, uh, I, at the t- upper level here, I mean, the economy looks sensational there. And it's not, of course, it's not filtering down. There's an awful lot of people in, in middle America that are not getting any of the benefits from that. But, but as the economists will tell you and as the political pundits will tell you, th- those are the states where they, they, they went Trump last 
last time, and they'll go Trump again this time. And because yeah. he says it's not my fault, it's somebody else's fault, and they they yeah. simply buy into that. So yeah. there's no upside for him to do this. I mean, he he doesn't want to be a nice guy. He's not trying to be friendly. I know they're going to uh, when Christia Freeland goes down and talks to Robert Lighthizer today in Washington, uh, they're probably going to bring up the China thing and about how Canada's getting screwed around by the Chinese, and they're going to say, yeah, they're right, they are doing that. They, it's terrible what they're doing, but they're not going to do anything about it. Why should they? I that is my view. Um, that is exactly my view, which is exactly why I've argued that the solution, if we want to address this problem of the Chinese retaliation, no matter how unfair we think it is, and, we, and it is unfair by the Chinese, but the reality is they're the other superpower. Uh, and, and I say this frequently, and it drives people up the wall, but it's a true reality. The rules for the two superpowers are not the same rules that apply to the rest of us. And everyone says, well, you know, they're cheating. You know, they're not playing by the same rules as Canada. Yep, you're right. Yep, the two superpowers don't. They're in a class of their own because they're just bigger and more powerful than everybody else. And they can get away with things that smaller countries cannot get away with. And that's just a reality. Is it unfair? Of course it's unfair. You know, there's lots of things in life that are unfair. You know, accidents are unfair. I mean, car accidents and airplane accidents are terribly unfair, but they happen. And, and so my point being that I think that we cannot depend on the states to save us from, in this instance, the problems with China. We're going to have to be masters of our own destiny. And I still believe, and I've been maintaining this steadily, the prime minister, whoever it is, but right now Prime Minister Trudeau, has got to establish meetings face-to-face, a mano-a-mano if they want to use that macho language. And he's got to go over there and meet President Xi and sit down, and I don't mean for 10 minutes. I mean, have face-to-face meetings over several days, and he's got to develop personal relationships because at the senior level, and this has been well-recorded and well-documented and talked about for many, many, many years. Kissinger talked about this in his memoirs. The Chinese respect relationships at the highest level, and doing it through minions and ambassadors and third-level down the hierarchy people, I mean, they're good people, but they're not the top dog. They're not the top person. And, and I think where we have been missing in action is the prime minister not being over there developing, uh, uh, shall we say, deeper relationships. I didn't say friendships, deeper professional relationships with Xi, because it's going to require a political solution. If we leave it to the courts, it's going to be in the courts for years to come because there's all kinds of checks and balances. We all know that. There's all kinds of provisions to appeal by both the woman who has been uh, prosecuted, the, the CFO of Huawei, uh, and, of course, the, 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 defense, the prosecution could appeal, too, any ruling of the court. So if we allow it to go through the people, say, let the rule, the rule of law take its course, well, okay, <laughs> that's going to take five or six or seven years. Do we really want to have this relationship going on like this, where they're blocking our canola, and then tomorrow it's pork, and the next day it's beef? Do we really want that to go on for the next seven years? I don't think so. And so that's why I argue we need a political solution, a face-saving solution for both sides, for our side and their side, that will allow us to release her after they've, I don't know, apologized or whatever they can negotiate out of them. Because I do not believe that what we're doing now is working, and I do not believe it's sustainable, meaning the pain they're inflicting on us, whether we like to admit it or not, is very substantial. 
We've got to get over one big hurdle, I think, though, Ian, if we're going to do that. And I, I don't disagree. I think you're absolutely bang on here that we've got to fight our own battles. And if we want a better relationship with China, that's up to us to develop it. We can't ask the third party to get involved in that. Yes. But but we've got to get over this. Look, there are human rights violations in China. We know that. There's an awful lot about the Chinese government that we don't like. And yes, they, they do meddle in this. And, and yeah, they do they do spy. We get all that. Yeah. But you can't ignore them. I mean, as you say, this is probably going to be the largest economy in the world in the not-too-distant future. Yes. You and to, and to suggest, yes, we're going to have meetings and we're going to develop deals does not mean we, we endorse everything that they're doing. Not at all. But at the same time, we've got to have some sort of a relationship. But because of these human rights violations and some of the other things that, that make them bad guys, we simply say, well, we can't get involved. We have to get involved. We have to. And, and, uh, and I know my human rights friends and my people on the left who say, you know, what about principles and ideals and all that? The Pew Research Center, which is a very distinguished think tank in the United States, has estimated that 40% of the 200 countries at the U.N. are not democratic, are not rule of law. So are we going to, if we're not going to deal with China, because they do, by the way, I have no dispute with what you said. They commit human rights violations. There's serious reports that they harvest organs of prisoners, uh, that, you know, that they put them to death to take their organs for senior people in the Communist Party. Like, this is really odious stuff. Uh, but if we are going to apply that principle, well, there's a, 40% of the countries of the world are odious and doing odious things. I mean, has people heard of Libya? You know, Venezuela, uh, Saudi Arabia, where they behead people. Um, and, and, and so my point is, that doesn't mean that we agree with everything. There's things we don't agree with about the United States. We all know that as Canadians. You know, we don't like their gun control laws. Uh, but we, uh, that doesn't, you know, we still have professional relationships with them. And, and so I think the reality is that with China, and I'm not advocating a comprehensive trade agreement. I don't think it's possible to have a comprehensive trade agreement with China. But that doesn't mean that we cannot trade with China. <laughs> and, and we can trade in non-sensitive areas. We can trade enormous amounts of agricultural products, which are not commercially or intellectually sensitive in terms of intellectual property or, or uh, uh, military secrets. There's no military secrets in canola or pork or beef and so forth, or seafood. And so there's, or, or timber, or LNG, or oil. I mean, there's lots of resources that they need from us and we can do a very good business without getting, without endorsing them any more than we, you know, are endorsing other countries that we deal with, in you know, in most of the countries in Africa, um, uh, in the Middle East and the northern uh, northern part of Africa and Central Africa, are are first-rate dictatorships, and we have no problem having embassies over there, and we actually provide lots of money to some of these countries that we find odious. So. You know, if we can, and they say, well, you know, that's humanitarian. Okay, but if we can provide money to an odious regime, I'm surely we can trade with an odious regime. The easiest way to solve this thing is to put Ms. Wong back on a plane and, and send her back to, to China and simply say sorry about all this. I, I mean, that's that's really the crux of this whole thing, and that's why Canada is under so much grief right now from from the Chinese government, uh, yes. because they acted as an intermediary, and, and the United States is not going to look at that and, and reciprocate and say, look, you did us a favor, we're going to do you one. That's not going to happen. Exactly, and that's why I thought we made uh, the mistake goes back to allow, allowing her to land. We now know, it's on the public record, Mr. Trudeau said so himself, that the Canadian government had three days' advance notice before she landed, that she was coming to, uh, she was landing in Vancouver on a flight. So we knew it in advance. And we could have just sent out, I mean, this sort of thing, back-channel communications with governments occur all the time. That's why you have an embassy abroad. 
you don't do everything through a press conference on television. You have an embassy to have a back-channel relationship to that country. We could have sent a back-channel message so easily, so instantaneously. Please, Ms. Meng, will you please divert to another country because we do have a warrant for your arrest. Just, just, just thought I'd let you know. And, of course, she would have rebooked. And and the reason for that was it was as clear as a bell, as clear as snow in January in Ottawa, that if we had uh, were going to arrest her, we were going to create enormous blowback. And again, this is not about kowtowing to the Chinese. It's just being uh, brutally re- uh, uh, you know, cognizant of the reality of what we're dealing with. And, and I predicted the day she was arrested, this is going to be a long and painful process for Canada, because the Chinese, are, I've been over there many times, and they're not going to put up with this. Exactly. They're going, to, they're going to retaliate, and they're going to keep squeezing up the ratchet, <laughs> you know, until one day we start to realize, my goodness, this is getting awfully expensive to be the, the, uh, the assistant to the United States in their, uh, you know, in their conflict with China. And, and this isn't even our fight. This is about Iran, for goodness sake. And yes, we, are, we don't admire the Iranian regime. It's an odious regime also. There's another one. But, you know, we're, we, we, we can't start playing, you know, junior assistant policemen uh, to the United States because somebody has violated one of, their, uh, one of their boycotts. Exactly. Ian, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Reaction, and for that matter, outrage, uh, continues to pour in uh, over Hamilton City Council's vote the other day uh, to not offer free menstrual products in certain city facilities. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I don't know, just flabbergasted as so many other people are about some of the comments made by some of the counselors in a situation like this. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Laura Babcock, uh, from uh, president, of course, of Power Group. Laura, thank you so much for the time on a busy day. I'm glad you could join us today. That's my pleasure, Bill. Look, and, you, yep. you've got, you, here, the state of Alabama has just outlawed abortion. Uh, you've got the Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, who's now talking about overturning Roe v. versus Wade, and you've got city council doing this. Uh, welcome to the 19th century, Laura. Yeah, it certainly feels that way, and the outrage continues because the comments by councillors still continue. Councillor Whitehead tweeted me something in a conversation that I was in on Twitter about this, which made more people angry. <laughs> you know, they, they can't seem to get their head around why people are upset about this issue. And when you put it in that broader context of what the Alabama state legislature passed last night, uh, and as you mentioned, some of the other things going on around abortion and women's rights and women's reproductive health, I think it adds even more fuel to the fire for people. We just don't want to see women's rights reverting. But also, in this case, Bill, I think a lot of people hear it and say, well, why would the city need to pay for tampons and pads? We already pay for so many things. We, we're burdened heavily with our tax bill. We've got, as we know, a class action lawsuit on the Red Hill coming at the city and all kinds of other costs. So people, some people are reacting and saying, you know, why do we pay for this? I personally have learned a lot in the last 48 hours on this issue because of just why it is so important to not only women's health, women's equity, but also to so many of our vulnerable populations. They really need the support. It's the second most requested thing at food banks. I had no idea, Bill, I've always been privileged to not look at those monthly products as something that I had to choose whether I could buy or not. But there are people in this city far too many who have to make that choice. And if they choose other substandard things, they can really damage their health and get infections. So this is about equity. It's about public health. 
Uh, we don't all carry around toilet paper in our, you know, purses or pockets or briefcases. So I think it's it's fair and it's right. And other other jurisdictions have made this move, and I think we should follow. We just uh, were involved with a program. Uh, we, we, call, we call it March Padness, uh, you know, to take off on March Madness, uh, a couple of months ago, obviously. And it had to do with this very thing about feminine hygiene products. And we partnered with FoodShare because, as you mentioned, that is one of the most common requests, of course, from people that have to go to food banks and things of this nature. And they don't usually stock that sort of stuff. So we asked our listeners, and, and by the way, they responded beautifully, as they always do here in Hamilton, uh, to, to make some donations. And we sent that off to FoodShare, and we did this. Uh, apparently, nobody at city council was paying attention to it any of this stuff. I mean, uh, how, how can they be so blind and, and, and so ignorant on a, on, a, on a topic like this? Well, and that's part of the problem, right? It's not just that some of them didn't know the impact on women's health, and on, especially people living in poverty or people living in precarious employment or, or in all kinds of other vulnerable situations in our city. As I said off the top, I didn't understand that either. I've been educated by Maureen Wilson, Councillor Wilson, bringing this forward in the outrage and discussion that's ensued. Um, so I think some of them wouldn't have any direct experience, and so they might not have understood the public health implication. But where this became a big deal in terms of even having Vice News once again uh, at City Hall doing another story on on, on City Council here is because of the, the way they framed the discussion. Uh, you know, it wasn't just ignorance of the issue and the implications on women's health. It was also about uh, you know, the, the looking to be privileged and not understanding other people's uh, positions. But I think the comments that really inflamed this bill were when Esther Paul said she didn't feel comfortable talking about the subject in public. And for so many people, uh, that made her appear to be uh, completely out of touch. Some people feel that a city councillor, if it's a public health issue, you know, you, you, it's your job to do that. Even if you're not comfortable, you got to talk about tough stuff. That's the but committee, then, Laura. This was the public health committee. I mean, that's their right. job. This is and and, and hey, we, we, just a little later in the show, we're going to talk about how the public health department is probably going to get evaporated now because of this provincial ruling. This is the responsibility of those city councillors to provide these sorts of services to the community. Absolutely, and so she has to be able to talk about it. So when she said that, it further stigmatized the issue. It further made people feel alienated from their city leadership. But then there was another comment that Esther made about how, you know, women don't need this because women are prepared. And so I took a photo when I was at the Hamilton Club yesterday, obviously a club for people who have the money to pay for it. It's a privilege to be a member there. There's no doubt about it. But I took a picture and posted it of the free tampons and pads they have there. So not only can club members pay for their own, but it suggests to me the fact that it's there and it's at other good establishments around town too, that we're not always prepared. We don't always know. It doesn't work like that. It's not like clockwork, you know. And so just this idea that you can't talk about it, that women should be able to afford it and that, you know what, uh, we're prepared, so we don't need that. I, it's just it's just not accurate or factual. One third of all Canadians said in a survey they miss events and work and school because of their periods. 70% plus said that the the expense of it is, is uh, difficult for them. I mean, so council was just ill-informed and made some comments that just seem like you said, 19th century and out of touch, and, and they need to be accountable for how they have had this discussion. A uh, report uh, that was issued, uh, well, last year, 2018, by uh, Plan International Canada uh, says that one-third of women under the age of 25 say they struggle to afford menstrual products. Uh, times are tough for an awful lot of people, and this is not just people that are below the poverty line. It can be a problem. And 
it's it's a basic human need, for heaven's sakes. Why are we being so stupid about this and, and having a debate about this? What are they going to do next day? We're not going to supply toilet paper? Well, this is the thing. And, you know, half the population needs these things for their dignity and for their, men, for their health. Uh, and we know, especially with the cuts coming down to health services, one of the most important things you can do to cut the cost of health care is preventative care, right? And so the idea that having access to the proper products can prevent women from having issues with their uh, reproductive health. I mean, it's just, it is a no-brainer on so many levels. And, you know, the province of Alberta, or uh, BC, I believe, has gone ahead with having it in all their public places. You've got, I think, Halifax is looking at it, London. I mean, we're, we're not doing something in Hamilton or discussing something in Hamilton just because people are, you know, uh, activists for people living in poverty. It's not what this is about. This is just awareness around the key role providing these products does for for people in our community who need access to them. And so so from that point of view, the cost is minimal. It's a no-brainer. Um, it was the, the way that council didn't seem to get the discussion. And even Terry Whitehead's tweet to me talked about, well, he, you know, his daughter and her friends must have been it must have been fortunate. But yeah, that's the point. Clearly they were, you know. Uh, and so understand that as a counselor, look at the data, listen to the expert recommendations, have compassion for people who don't have the same fortune as you clearly do, uh, and give people what they need to be equitable and safe and healthy. And listen, as, as bad as some of the comments from counselors were, and, and there were some outrageous comments that were made, and obviously some uninformed comments, but you know what, bad on city staff too, because they did a report on this. Uh, and and it's, it's all about costing, which is, by the way, some of the things that counselors tried to hang their hat on when they turned this thing down. Uh, and they suggested that uh, it would cost initially about $46,000, but then they say, well, it would cost $11.2 million for all females in Hamilton between 12 and 49. Nobody is asking every you know to everybody to be supplied. This is for people that need it. I mean, that, what a ridiculous statistic to come out. And a number of counselors cited that number and said, well, we just can't afford to do that. It's never going to cost that much. New York City has put this program in place. This is a lot bigger city than Hamilton, and their total cost was only $3 million over a long period of time. So where the hell did they get that number from? That's really, really unfortunate. And, and, uh, and you, can, you can defeat any discussion if you are willing to go to the extreme ends of the argument, right? I mean, you can say that about anything. You can take anything to its outer extremes and say, look how extremely scary that is. But that is not reasonable, rational, good public policymaking. And so for the staff who, who threw that bomb into the mix, I, I would love for them to kind of question why and, and where its accuracy even applies. But even if, let's say, staff just said, oh, we better give them everything, we better give them the extremes, uh, for the counselors to pick it up and to run with that just shows how they didn't really have a handle on the issue because it's ridiculous. And, and I want to give you know, Sam Marola credit for trying to get at least a motion forward that seems a lot more reasonable, talking about this is about equity, this is about health, uh, let's, let's actually get some real facts and stats and let's see if we can get this pilot going. So I'm glad to see that council hasn't just left it in this embarrassing logjam of a discussion, and they're, they're trying, at least some of them are, to move this thing forward. Well, and uh, Council Marul, of course, was not at that meeting. For, uh, he, was, he was not able to attend, so he's obviously coming late to the party on this, but he's coming, at least he's bringing some, some common sense to this whole discussion, uh, which seemed to be lacking around the table that morning. 
Well, and you know what, Esther Pauls is a, you and I both know her, most people probably do. She's a lovely woman and she speaks from the heart. She's not a politician. Uh, and she does have a different experience. She is a different generation and she, you know, they kept those conversations private and, and her experience is what it is. But when she said things like, you know, we're not, thank God we're not in a third world country, that is, it's got nothing to do with the issue or to do with the, the facts. It says, as you said, one in third Canadians struggle to pay for these products. So, I guess the the challenge is for her going forward is to realize that as a counselor, uh, there are difficult subjects that might be outside of your scope of direct experience, but that's where you need to listen and learn. And she has on the Red Hill Parkway uh, lawsuit, she told me directly that she would have an open mind and listen and learn. And she she and she made the decision to proceed with that. So I know she's capable of that. Uh, and I think going forward, a lesson for her is to to just think a little bit more because words have uh, words have weight. And a lot of women felt as though they were, um, you know, sort of pushed back or pushed down or or maligned by those comments. And I don't think she intended any of that. But that's certainly how it came across to some. You know, there's a, sometimes you just have to step back from where you are. And, and, and there's some good people on council. I'm not trying to, you know, throw everybody under the bus here. But you got to remember sometimes when you're sitting around that table, especially people that have been on council for a long time, that not everybody in the city makes $100,000 like they do. Uh, and maybe you know, get out of your office once in a while and go walk around the streets in downtown Hamilton, in the north end, on Concession Street, uh, over in the east end, uh, in some of those uh, housing projects, and get a sense for what people are challenged with each and every day. And maybe you get a better understanding about a request like this if you do that sort of thing. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, I'm the first to acknowledge, Bill, that I live in a very you know, uh, a nice little bubble. And um, and so, you know, I need education on this too, but I'm not a city councillor. I mean, that's that's basic that they should understand their populations and all the issues that affect them. And Tom Jackson left me a voicemail, which uh, because of the way that he kind of formally phrased it as a response to my formal voicemail to him on the issue as my counsellor, I posted it for people to see and to consider because he asked for it to be heard and considered. And some people just saw that voicemail and said, what? Like, it, it seemed galling to them because it seemed disconnected, you know, and he voted for this. And it's not as though he doesn't, he's not trying to understand the issue. But it's, to your point, the perspective sometimes that they communicate from just doesn't seem to line up with the experience of so many people in Hamilton. And, you know, as the longest serving counselor, you would have hoped after all these years he would be more aware of that, more aware of how important tone is and words are. So, you know, it's uh, it's been, I think, a, a lesson for a number of these counselors that an issue that shouldn't be that big of a deal, that has a lot of evidence to consider, can blow up in their face if, if they just don't realize the role and the importance of their power. They have power. And when you have power, as I tell many of my clients, where, you know, CEOs and politicians and whatever, uh, when you have power, there's a higher there's a higher level of scrutiny on your language. There's a higher impact to what that language does and means to people. You have to be very, very careful with it. Not politically correct, but careful and considerate with how you communicate. You've done this. I've done this. Uh, I don't know how many people around the council table did this. Research. It, it's, it's, a, it's a small word, but it means an awful lot. Before you vote on something, before you spend time speaking about something, know what you're talking about. I mean, it didn't take long for me to gather a number of statistics about what's going on in New York, and as, as you have as well. And we both did this independently. I'm surprised that more counselors didn't do this and find out exactly where this is happening, because many other communities, as we've talked about, are already doing this. And it's not costly. 
and it is a, a it's it's really a basic human right and i can't understand why they would not have any any knowledge about this sort of thing before they actually decided to vote on this and and you let's put this in perspective as you mentioned the proposal from councilor wilson a pilot project it wasn't to commit for this for the next 100 years let's do this in certain par- areas see how it works see how effective it is what's the downside well i think you've hit on a key point there uh Hamilton Council has done a lot of bloviating for a long time. Uh, they've they've talked about a lot of ridiculous things. I mean, I, I we've covered them as you know for 20 years, mm. uh, uh, Kim 14, and you've done it, and everybody else. Uh, and so part of that comes from the fact that they're they're too eager to opine and be heard, and to almost extemporaneously or through consciousness respond to things without doing the research. And and as you know, Bill, I do multiple shows a day, often on topics that. I just care about 10 minutes before, but what I do quickly, and they they should do this, right? Look at the staff stuff, but just simply go to Twitter, go in the search, look up all the articles on it, get a quick, get a quick at least sketch of the issue so you can at least reference and look up more later or challenge your own bias, Uh, be curious, right? I mean, it's not that difficult in 2019 to have access to really good information really, really quickly. And they need to start doing that because, there's now social media and obviously a lot of other media looking at Hamilton Council these days because of everything going on with the city, good and bad. Uh, there's a higher level of scrutiny and, and words are going to be carried and videos are going to be passed around. And they have to realize that we're paying them to be professional. Check the latest data on whatever you're about to open your mouth about and realize that as a leader, your words can hurt people. They can make people feel distant and disenfranchised. And, and that that's damaging. Uh, you know, be a little more cautious and a little bit more professional. Hamilton Council, please. Exactly. I, and listen, because of Sam Rulis thing, maybe they're going to do a redo on this, but uh, I prefer that they got it right the first time. Laura, thanks as always. Always a pleasure having you on the program. My pleasure. Laura Babcock, uh, president of Power Group. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Public health. Uh, when it was revealed this week that uh, there could be, uh, well, a, an amalgamation. I know that's a dirty word for an awful lot of people, but uh, what the province announced uh, that they were going to do was merging 35 public health units into 10, which means Hamilton's going to have to join a new unit uh, with other people, and we're not quite sure exactly how that's going to roll out and how that's going to affect, well, the role of public health and the, uh, the effectiveness of public health. So uh, to that end, we are pleased to bring uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson back to the program. Uh, Dr. Richardson, of course, is the Chief Medical Officer of Health for Public Health here in the city of Hamilton, for now, anyway. Uh, Doctor, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again. Thanks, Bill. Good to be with you. Uh, this is the, uh, kind of a, a punch to the gut for an awful lot of people. We were just having uh, discussions on the program over the last couple of days about public health issues and, and so many different things, and you've been gracious enough to join us on many issues like this. I mean, this is an important element and a very important service that uh, the city has to supply to this and needs to supply to this community. Uh, You were on a conference call the other day. Could you explain exactly what you were told and and how this is going to impact what you do and what your board does and what your your, your organization does? Yeah, sure. Thanks for the opportunity to do that. Uh, You know, what we've um, heard, and and information is coming out uh, slowly from the province. You know, there was the budget announcement that happened back at the beginning of April, and then the uh, public health staff within the province have been working with us to try and understand where they're going from here. Um, so what we have been told is we're going in Ontario from the current 35 health units to 10, um, that uh, the funding formula for public health is being changed and that um, they're expecting some efficiencies 
from the changes. We're also told that they're making a new investment in, in terms of seniors' dental health, and so we got some information around that too. So we got some more specifics for Hamilton in terms of understanding a little bit further the exact uh, uh, you know way they're cal- making calculations and uh, and the announcement that we would get some one-time funding to help with their, the transition. So that was about $1.4 million um, as we go forward. We're still trying to understand fully what the impacts will be as we do this. So I don't have precise numbers, but overall... It's a subset of our programs and services that they're talking about, and those services right now cost about $38.9 million to deliver here in Hamilton. We operate under a set of standards called the Ontario Public Health Standards, which the province sets out for all of us, but we do provide additional programs, which our council here uh, funds, like the Municipal Dental Treatment Program and a number of other things, um, as well as running some programs like Alcohol, Drug and Gambling and Child and Adolescent Services, which are separate so it's about a $38.9 million um, budget that's being impacted, and uh, it's transitioning from what was a 70-30 funding split, uh, sorry, a 75-25 funding split for most programs, with some 100% funded by the province, to now all being 70-30, and then eventually by 2021-2022, going to a 60-40 split in terms of funding. So it's a significant shift in terms of the expectations around how much the municipality is going to going to pay for those. We know the region will belong to, so it, uh, um, or at least that they're proposing we belong to, I should say, because these are proposed new boundaries, but it would include Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman County, Norfolk County, and Brant um, going forward. And, um, you know, we also uh, found out that we would get another $2.2 million for uh, seniors' dental programming here in Hamilton as well in that call. Uh, and, and that's nice, but I mean, the overall concern here, and the, well, there's a number of them here, I guess, that we have to talk about here. Uh, one of this is the funding formula, the fact that it's going to go eventually, and, and it, it, that's a pretty short p- time period, by the way, about a year and a half to two years, uh, from 70-30 down to, to 60-40. Uh, and some of those costs that the province is already paying f- fully for now is going to be the responsibility. Uh, the obvious question here is how's that, how are you going to be able to absorb those, those extra costs? I mean, that's going to be a huge burden to the city to come up with that kind of money. It is. I mean, those one-time funds are certainly going to help in terms of the transition. And the other thing we know is, you know, as we talked about those you new know, regional um, uh, organizations being put in place, it's regional boards that they've announced. So they would be the new decision-making bodies uh, that would be in place actually by 20, April 1st, 2020 is when they're trying to have them up and running. And so, um, you know, part of the, the the transition will be the transition in terms of decision-making around those things. They are looking to find some efficiencies as we go forward with that. They're looking at, you know, they classically talk about back office functions and that sort of thing. But, you know, all of that sort of has to be sorted out in terms of what the expectations are, what the resources are in the different areas and and figure out what's really practical in terms of moving forward. Um, So, you know, overall, when we look at it for this year, the, the funding impact you know, comes down, uh, you know, below a million dollars because of the, uh, the the one-time funding. But as we go forward, it's still it's still quite significant. As I said, we're working out the exact uh, numbers, but this is millions of dollars that we're talking about in terms of that uh, that change. I, I want to talk about governance here in just a second, but I'm, I, I've got a comment because I, I know you're using the language that the government's using here about finding efficiencies. Efficiencies is a euphemism for, for budget cuts. Uh, that's political speak, and I know you're you're not in politics, but uh, but I've been there, done that, and I understand the language, and, and that's essentially what this is coming down. I, the, the concern I think a lot of us have, though, Doctor, is, look, at this may be a less expensive system that they're proposing right now, but is it going to be as an efficient system as what you have? 
You know, and I think that's that's the most important thing to remember. You know, I talked about it with uh, the Board of Health on Monday, and and you know, public health happens locally. It happens here in the communities. It happens, you know, here in Hamilton. It happens across you know Dundas, Stony Creek, um, you know, and and North to South. And it's the same for Niagara, Haldeman County, Norfolk County, Brant, wherever you are. You know, the, the issues that we're dealing with, whether it's communicable disease control or it's inspection of food premises and restaurants or whether we're looking at, you know, how to increase physical activity and improve good nutrition, that happens on every single front. And it happens directly with the people that we serve and the organizations that we work with. And it happens with the, the partners like the school boards, the hostels, the new Ontario health team. You know, all of that happens on a local basis. So maintaining that local pre- presence, that local connection to the needs and the voice of the communities, that's absolutely critical for us as we move forward. So, Whatever else is, you know, thought of in terms of that coordination, that's where our focus is here in Hamilton in terms of the, the, the staff. And as we're looking at it, we know the public health, the public's health is our paramount concern. And that's what we're focusing on. And that's what we'll focus on as we go forward through these discussions is how can we make sure those needs are met, those needs are understood. And and we continue to have the voices of the community when we're when we're doing that work. But just from what we know so far about the proposed structure here, I, I get the sense, though, Doctor, that's going to be more difficult to do because uh, you know you're Hamilton. You know the Board of Education. You know the the challenges here. Uh, you know about uh, you know the, some of the concerns and some of the programs that you set up to to meet some of those challenges. Uh, and with all due respect, I, I love our neighbors, all the ones that you just talked about here. But their needs are different in different parts. I mean, some of those are, are pr- predominantly rural communities as opposed to uh, the urban concerns that we have here. Uh, and I have to ask ourselves whether or not this is actually going to be a, an efficient system. And if uh, some of the programs that you have put in place over the years to address some of the, the needs in this community are, are going to fall by the wayside now simply because we're bigger now and, and there's, there's a much more broader perspective on things. And that's certainly a concern that's important to think about as we go forward. You know, what we know from the provinces, they're going to come out and consult. They're going to talk about these things as we go forward. And those are critical elements as we move forward is how do we find the ways that it actually helps? So we're, there's some, you know, we we work across the province as it is in terms of, you know, helping us come up with really great ideas. And we're like, great, can we use that? And, you know, we're fortunate we work in a system where there's free and open sharing because it's all public money that we're talking about. You know, nobody's trying to keep their, their good idea secret or or get compensation for anybody else. So we already have the, a free flow of ideas, and it may be that we'll have you know, more ideas shared with when we come together and can learn from those things. But ultimately, there does need to be that consideration and make sure we don't lose the local character and the local needs um, as we go forward. And that's, that you know, will be something to think about from a governance perspective. The province has talked about the importance of municipalities, the role of municipalities in terms of, they move, of moving forward in, in decision-making and in public health. And so... That is something that, you know, will there be a means in order to ensure a local advisory council? Do you have local um, staff who operate at that level looking at those needs, uh, addressing them, having those partnerships, working in the community so that they can do that? Can you make sure that decision-making, you know, somehow respects those those, um, elements to it? But absolutely, those are things that need to be thought of and and are the cautions uh, that need to be... Uh, thought about when we move forward. Well, exactly. And I mean, we're talking about some of the Hamilton concerns. I'm sure this same conversation is happening in St. Catharines and, and, and Niagara and Fort Erie and, and, and Port Dover. I mean, all over the place right now. I mean, there's a legitimate concern here, but are we still going to be looked after in our communities? Yeah. And I, you know, I think that the, the rural urban piece, I think is one that we're already starting to hear about a bit. 
Um, you know, this is happening right across uh, the province and, and you know, the, the issues of small communities, small areas, rural areas, combining with larger urban uh, municipalities, that's absolutely a concern that we're hearing right across. And so what does make the most sense in terms of boundaries uh, as we move forward? How do you bring it together um, as we work forward? This is deja vu all over again. This is the same process we went through with amalgamation back around the turn of the century. Uh, and we could argue how well that went, but I don't want to go down that road right now. But it is it is concerning because as, as well, you were there, and I was certainly there uh, for that yeah. first term of the new amalgamated council, and, and we spent an awful lot of time in those first year or two as an amalgamated city saying, wow, we didn't see this happening. Uh, and, and there's some unforeseen uh, challenges that are going to crop up, and I'm sure that's going to happen here too. And, and uh, I guess we have to ask ourselves, are there going to be contingencies built in to accommodate some of those? You know, absolutely. And I, I love, you know, Chris Murray, our, our former city manager, used to use the analogy of uh, for any new organization, it's kind of like a, a child growing up and, you know, you sort of learn as you go and you discover things as you go and, and it takes time. And so, you know, anybody who does, organizational change or any kind of change knows like when you bring things together there's things you knew about there's things you didn't know about there's new things that crop up um, as you move forward and so the the organization the people in it as you move forward has to be very aware of that look for it be mindful of it and we're not going to be able to think of everything there's just no way um, but we have to be able to be open to it and responsive to it as we move forward. Was there a discussion at all, Doctor, about governance in situations like this? I mean, the way we do it here in Hamilton, which, by the way, I think is a great idea. I mean, you know, back in the day there, we used to just have a, a public health committee and social service committee uh, of seven or eight different councillors. Now the entire council is, in fact, the Board of Health. Uh, and I think that gives you a much broader perspective on the city. So it, it's, a, it's a model that I think is working here. But in this new system, did you get any indication at all uh, in that phone call about how this is going to be governed? Who's going to be on that board? Is it going to be all the councillors from all these areas, or are there going to be a handful of them? And how do you select that? Who's going to do what? No, those are all the questions. You know, absolutely, that's been our experience in 2006, 2007. We made that change, so all of council became um, you know, present at the Board of Health meetings. And it's made a big difference for public health staff in terms of getting advice, getting uh um, information at the counselors in terms of things they're they're seeing in their wards. It's been great to have that. And as we move forward, we don't have any idea how we're uh, how that's going to happen. Um, it would certainly be a challenge um, in size to figure out a way to have everybody at the table. I'll just you know say as we uh, as we move forward. But something that that ensures that representativeness, that ensures those voices are heard, that ensures that um, they're able to make good decisions at that table will be absolutely critical. Well, especially because, as you say, there's so many different aspects to, to these communities uh, and, and different voices that need to be heard in situations like this. Uh, you know, safe injection sites, maybe not something that resonates an awful lot with some people in some of these other areas, but it's a very, very valuable tool for, as you and I have discussed on this show before, uh, for the for the, the urban part of, the, of this, well, this community, obviously in the Hamilton community, and there are like-minded programs, I'm sure, in other areas too. So this is, this is, uh, this is it's going to be very difficult to try to uh, list priorities as to what can be done because as as we talked about right at the beginning of this conversation there's not going to be a whole lot of money available as a matter of fact there's probably going to be less and the funding formula has changed right now so uh, we're going to have to pony up more money than we ever did and then we're going to have to start saying well do we really need this and uh, the perspective you might get from some of these other areas might not be as 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 helpful as as you might expect to try to maintain some of these programs well you know again that comes back down to that piece about flexibility certainly we know that that communities have their own cultures in terms of what they want and what they expect. They have their own needs that are 
based in, you know, health issues that are faced in different areas. You know, Hamilton's an older urban municipality. You've got rural areas in, in Haldeman and Norfolk and Brant. And so how can that kind of flexibility, those kinds of needs, that kind of, of people's voice be heard in this and reflected so that programs can be tailored to those? It's, it's sort of, it, that's totally un, in line with the principles of public health and, and how it's practiced. What are the other elements of this? And, and again, I'll, I'll refer back to the amalgamation process um, that, that we went through and, and some of the, the, the shortcomings that we saw as a result of this. Uh, there seemed to be a mantra by that provincial government at the time that, look at, you know, uh, we can have efficiencies, uh, that we get rid of management, so we're top-heavy in management. Uh, and, and we found out that it was a less efficient system. And as a matter of fact, I think we ended up hiring most of those positions back over a period of time. Uh, there seems to be an indication here that one of the reasons to find these quote-unquote efficiencies again is is to eliminate a number of different management positions. I don't get the sense, doctor, uh, that, that we're top-heavy with management, and I'm sure the other boards of health are, are in similar situations. Uh, is there a concern here that this is going to make for a, a less efficient system if you're going to start eliminating positions and say, well, we're going to ask fewer people to do more? Yeah, you know, I've been in this business now for 25 years and been through the amalgamation here in Hamilton, been through lots of ideas about, you know, flattening organizations and, and concerns about management and roles. And and ultimately, you know, there's some, some really important principles in terms of, you know, communication and making sure that we have people to function at different levels and different ideas. And not everybody does the same job. Like, we all have very distinct jobs as we go forward. And so we have to make sure in whatever organization that's created that that there's a good understanding of those things. There's good principles used in it because you need people thinking about, you know, inspecting restaurants and you need people planning for how can we do restaurant inspections even better or, or are there other premises that we need to reach out to? And, you know, that tends to be at the management level. And you need people making the, the connections with the leadership at the school boards and with the health teams and the hospitals. And that te- tends to be at a senior leadership level. And so every one of us has a different job to do. And we need to make sure that all those those jobs, all that work is thought about, accounted for, and then a system put in place where we can all do what it is we need to do. You know, here in Hamilton, we did have a downsizing within our public health um, two years ago where we we decreased the number of senior leaders uh, by two, and we've changed things in terms of our manager and supervisor structure. But, of course, these have been factors that have been on people's minds my entire career about what's the right size of management and the different roles. And so I don't think any one of our organizations isn't thinking about those those factors across the, the five areas, the four health units that are being brought together. Um, so I think that is going to be an interesting thing to, to look at and think about further. Could there be some other sorts of administrative changes when we look at, at how some of those things are done? Sure. Sometimes there's going to be things that, that you know, if we're doing it for 10 people or 100 people or 1,000 people, um, you know, it, it doesn't take a lot more resources to do. So there may be some small areas. But um, in my experience, these haven't been large, uh, large percentages in terms of the efficiencies that are gained through that. And then there's other challenges that increase costs at the same time. So that's all going to be borne out, as they say, the devil's in the details as you, as you move forward. Exactly. Well, we need to get some of those details, and that's going to come out in the fullness of time, I guess, uh, which means this is probably just the first of many conversations we're going to have about this, Doctor. Thanks so much for the time today. It's great talking with you again today. Thank you, Bill. Good to talk with you, too. Take care. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health. A lot of changes coming in. Are they going to make it a better system? 
Uh, forgive me, but I'm skeptical. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.